Hi, I'm Kaitel. And I'm Joe. And we're the United Mates. Back in our school days, a shared passion for football brought us together as best friends. Today, we're separated by an ocean. I live in our hometown, London. And these days, I live in LA. But we still enjoy nothing more than chatting about the beautiful game. So we started a podcast. Join us. A few more old mates from school here and there. And new friends too from the world of professional football and beyond. This is the United Mates Football Podcast. Hello, hello, welcome and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. Today, as ever, I am joined by my co-host Joe, and we are both delighted to have a special guest on the pod with us as well. Today's guest's career in professional football began as a coaching intern at Fulham during Roy Hodgson's infamous spell at Craven Cottage. From there, our guest would become the first team fitness coach at Oldham, and then go on to hold down several coaching positions at Blackpool, Doncaster, Derby, and Leeds United before his most recent coaching spell in the Netherlands with Den Haag. Along the way, he's worked under the likes of Paul Dickov and Paul Ince, Oldham. He was even working for Paul Scholes's old club. Our guest is another Paul. We welcome Paul Butler to the United Mates Football Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you on the pod. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's uh, yeah, good to be here and uh, hopefully we enjoy it. Oh yeah, we're both thoroughly looking forward to this. Yes, no, we are indeed looking forward to it. And um, yeah, Paul, Joe here, great to have you. Um, what we always do when we have a a guest on our podcast is we start by um, posing an icebreaker question to our guests. So, sure. so <laughs> we've seen that during your time at Leeds United, you acted as somewhat of an interpreter between the Spanish speaking coaching staff and the rest of the squad. So um, between that and your background in sports science, um, we thought, um, well, we start thinking about Dr. Doolittle, actually. So for today's icebreaker, it's a bit of a bizarre one. If you could communicate with any animal, which animal would it be and why? I've got, uh, I've got to be honest, Joe, I haven't mentally prepared for that question. Uh, not that I've prepared particularly well for this by putting my daughter to bed anyway, but uh, if I could communicate, as, as in me be the animal or use an animal. No, as in you, you're still you, Paul Butler, but you, you're, you're able to, in this weird scenario, be able to chat with an animal, communicate with them. And I don't know. Oh, I've got you. <laughs> uh, I, I think I would choose the domestic cat. And I'll tell you why. I would choose the domestic cat because I've spent my whole life thinking they're very arrogant things. Uh, they, they, they look at you furiously, even when they're happy. And they don't have, uh, we, we are dog owners and we've got two Labradors and they, you can tell very quickly whether a dog's happy or not. And other than a bit of purring, you can't with a cat. So I'd like to be able to talk to a cat and, find, and get in its head and find out exactly what they're thinking. <laughs> very nice. Yeah. The, one of the greatest mysteries out there, I guess. But Kaito, what about you? Which animal would you be speaking to? Just off of the kind of icebreaker theme, I think it would have to be a polar bear because I would be able to then ask him how much he weighs obviously there's that kind of like joke about polar bears weighing enough to break the ice which clearly they don't because otherwise he would have drowned otherwise um maybe an elephant what they say elephants don't forget so i reckon they probably have some decent stories i would chat to yeah an elephant or a polar bear what about you joe 
I think it would probably, I've always had dogs, so it would have to be um, my family's dog at the moment. I mean, I don't know if it would make or break our relationship. You know, it'd be interesting to see what Buddy has to say if I could chat to him. I've got Zeus, my dog, actually by me. Hopefully he'll behave, but I don't know if it would, yeah, be nice or kind of <laughs> stressful to get inside his head. Who knows? Moving on from Dr. Doolittle stuff to football, and we're going to take things back to the start. So, Paul. What are some of your earliest and best football memories, either watching it or playing it in your youth? And who did you support when you were growing up as well? Uh, as a boy, I was an Arsenal fan. Um, so I used to visit Highbury and go, uh, I know all about the clock end and uh, the old Highbury, I mean, not the Emirates. Um, so I, I used to go down there when I was, when I was young and um, enjoy the days of Arsenal in the late 90s and the early 2000s, really. Even before that, I was born in 1985, so... Yeah, like I was a teen, early teenager in the late nineties, and you know those those times with the Arsene Wenger, the team that he inherited, with you know sort of Lee Dixon and Steve Bold and Tony Adams and Nigel Winterburn and those kind of players. Patrick Vieira came in the team. Ray Parler was there. Mark Overmars, Nicholas Anelka, Thierry Henry had just come in the team. Dennis Burkamp was there. They were the days that I loved. And of course, going through the early two thousands, a very successful period for Arsenal not least with an unbeaten season in 2004. So that's who I supported as a kid. And now I don't. And if, you know, if I'm ever working with a team and they're playing against Arsenal, I sincerely hope they lose. So your life changes really when you move into working in football from a, from a fan. And um, I suppose my earliest memory is playing football. My mother uh, signed me to a local football team at the age of, I think, three and a half or four years old. And I started playing football very, very young and she signed me into everything as, as a lot of mums do, you know, beavers and cub scouts and football and tennis clubs and all sorts of things. But football was one, the one that stuck with me really, if you like, I, I, that's never left me from my earliest memory. I can definitely relate on the mums kind of signing you up for stuff. I was once a, a, a tap dancing prodigy back in the days, according to my mum at least, but um, obviously you kind of, you've ended up in coaching. What type of footballer were you? Uh, not a very good one. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I was sort of a, um, a, failed, a failed central midfield player that ended up going to right fullback, which a lot, I was right footed. Um, so uh, that happens even in the professional game, actually, when you have central midfield players who struggle, but they can find themselves in another position. And fullback is often one without getting too uh, technical. So it's an, it's an easier position to play than central midfield because you, central midfield, you need to be able to be aware more and see everything around you. From fullback, relatively speaking, it's an easier position to play because you can see everything, and you and you don't have to be so competent on both feet. It's yeah, it's an easier place to play, and that's where I sort of set up my camp. Very nice. Yeah, I'm I'm a fullback as well. Maybe not by choice, but by necessity. But um, yeah, I guess Paul, as you were saying that you know you had ambitions of playing the game, and that didn't quite work out. But you've gone into coaching, and you um you were involved in fitness as well, fitness coaching as well. So where did your interest in fitness and sports science come from? Was it, was it because the sort of playing route wasn't an option? You saw that as an alternative into the game? My reason for getting into that side of it is because I didn't have a professional playing career, as you well know, and I needed to negotiate my way into the industry. I was very, very clear in my mind that I wanted to become a professional football coach from I say very young age, a relatively young age. I was a young adult, I was 17, 18 years old, and I was clear that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I went to university um, initially to do a biology degree. It didn't lend itself remotely to becoming a professional football coach. Uh, 
and therefore I, I then did a sports science degree that of course lends itself to sport in any context. Um, but my, my reason for doing that is because I thought you've got to split the game up into different sections. You can say, well, do I want to work in coaching? Yes, I do. And then I had two choices and I wanted to get to the first team as fast as I possibly could. And I wasn't going to do that if I immediately went in saying, I'm going to be able to make all tactical decisions and do set pieces and I'll be, I'll take the team play and the team tactical team meetings and all that stuff. If I'd have entered or attempted, sorry, to enter the game in that vein, uh, I would have got nowhere at senior level at all, probably even youth level. I wouldn't have had a chance at that. So I, I thought, well, if I can qualify in something that allows me to be on the pitch with the senior players and then take the warm-ups and be responsible for sports science is a very broad context now across all sports and, and football within itself. You can be any type of sports scientist. You can be a strength and conditioning expert. You can be a field-based fitness coach. You can take uh, pre-season-based conditioning. Most football clubs now at the highest level have multiple sports scientists with a different remit within one club. They have a department and quite rightly so, because it's so important. I wanted to use that as my lever into the senior game as fast as possible. So I qualified as a sports scientist and that was always going to be useful anyway. But what that gave me was it gave me the chance to get on the pitch very, very early in my career with the first team players. And then I was able to manipulate the nature of the work I was doing within what was given to me by managers I worked with. So for example, at Fulham right at the beginning, that gave me a chance to take warm-ups, but I would be very coachy about it. I'd be very, right, I'm going to take a passing drill. It's going to be with balls. That lent itself to me building a relationship with the footballers because they love that. They don't want to just run and jump over things and run in and out of poles and cones and mannequins. They want the balls out as quickly as you can get them out. And, um, and that was a really nice thing for me because it allowed me to give the players what they wanted, but also I was getting what I wanted in an early stage before I qualified as a coach with my badges. In the early stages, I could, I could get something out of it for myself too. That makes a lot of sense to really you know, make the most of the opportunities and to you know, see, these, see these gaps where you could sort of yeah, get in the players' favour and also improve your career. But going back to Fulham, that was, of course, your first job within professional football. And you were a, a coaching intern there under Roy Hodgson and Ray Lewington, the rest of the coaching staff. So how did that um, how did that opportunity come about? <laughs> That's it. This is the um, this is a, this is a long answer that I'm going to try and make as concise as possible. Um, <laughs> it, I, I had quite an unorthodox entry into the game because, as I've already alluded to, I didn't want to go down that typical pathway of I know I want to be a coach. So I'm going to start with the the young players and the kids and I'm going to do my B licence and I'm going to take under 15s in the evenings and all of that stuff. I have absolute respect for all of that, but that wasn't going to give me what I wanted at the pace or the cadence that I wanted it. So, and I may not have even set foot on a first team pitch today if I'd have gone down that road. I firmly believe there's a chance that might not have happened. So I was at university in Manchester. I was a student with no money, um, uh, anyone who's been a university student will empathise with that uh, and I and I needed experience and I, I I now actually try and I talk to university students often about how badly I tried to make this happen for myself so they can learn from how poor I was at the beginning and perhaps get a head start I wrote letters off to a lot of football clubs and I've still got five or six rejection letters upstairs you know somewhere which I like to keep one of which incidentally was Fulham 
just saying, you know, can I come and spend a bit of time in your club? Can I watch the training? Can I typical work experience type request? You know, I don't want to be any trouble. I don't want to be a pain. I don't want to do it. But can I come and uh, come and watch? And I didn't get anywhere. And rightly so, because writing a letter is nonsense and you'd never do that nowadays. This was, to be fair, 15 years ago, but that didn't work. So I tried a few phone calls. They didn't work. So I, uh, and this is a story (laughs) I've told to a couple of people recently, is I thought, right, how am I going to get myself into a position where I'm in front of somebody? How am I going to get that? So I, with the little money I had as a student, I went down to a charity shop and bought myself a suit. I was a very late developer. I did not look good as an 18 year old. <laughs> I, was, I was stick thin. I wasn't the unit that I am today, basically. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, bought myself a, uh, a suit. Didn't cost a lot of money, a couple of quid. And I thought, well, I'm gonna, I need to look really important here because the plan I had was I was just going to march into a Premier League training ground, uh, try and look as important as I could to get myself an opportunity. So I, um, I, I got myself a briefcase out of this charity shop as well. And it's one of those ones with combination locks on the side and all that kind of stuff. And it was fraying at the corners and pe- leather peeling off and the, the handle was really pathetic and floppy and all that sort of stuff. So I thought, right, I'm ready now. I, I had just about enough money for a taxi to Manchester City's training ground, which was at Carrington at the time. Anyway, I got out this taxi. And, I, and if, you, if anyone who knows Man City's training ground is at the time at Carrington was sort of surrounded by hedges like any Premier League training ground a gauntlet of security guards in yellow jackets. Yeah, it just looked so unlikely I was going to get anywhere. Um, and then I, I got out of this taxi and just bulldozed past this first security guard and he was looking at me and, said, and he just said, whoa, where are you going? I said, sorry, I'm really late for a meeting, mate. I mean, I've got to go. And I just went straight past, straight through. He was radioing up to the other ones and <laughs> talking to the other ones. And I was just going past and getting past and past and past as many as I could. Anyway, that it was a straight line from the entrance all the way to the reception door. And I got there uh, and there was a lady, uh, lady there, lovely lady on reception. Um, I was sweating badly at this point through a combination of nerves and exercise. And I, was, <laughs> I got, I got, I got to this reception and uh, I said, hello. Uh, she said, Hi. she was a really nice lady, which is what I needed at the time. I got there and she said, hi, love, what can I do for you? You know, what can I do? I said, oh, Hi, uh, I've got absolutely no arrangement to be here. <laughs> um, I was just wondering if I could speak to the manager, please. And she was, it was quite funny. She just went, oh, you're in luck because the first team are off today, but he's popped in to do a bit of uh, paperwork. So, you know, I just thought, oh, my God. It was Stuart Pearce at the time. And I thought, oh, my God, nightmare. So I, I was sweating badly. I was now blazer committed, what I call blazer committed to this suit. I couldn't take this thing. I was sweating. Yeah. So anyway, she rang him up, said... I've got a lad here. I don't know what he's doing here. He says he wants to see you. Blah, blah, blah. I had a quick chat with him. Anyway, put the phone down, said he's coming down in five minutes. And I just, <laughs> that was it. I was soiled myself, basically. He came through and he's, I've got to say, I jumped in at the deep end with intimidating football people because he was just big. It's the first thing I noticed about him was how big his legs are. His, you know, his, <laughs> just he was a big guy. He's like, and he's got that, you know, East London, what can I do for you? Sort of what he was saying. I said, oh, hi, um, I just want to watch your training. I'd love to, you know, so I don't want to be a minute's problem to you. Stand at the hedges, stand by the side, just take a few notes. If you don't happy with me doing that, I'll just watch. I just want to be, smell the environment, basically. I just want to, I'd never been in a Premier League training ground before. Um, I was 19, 20 years old. Um, I just want to, I just want to have a look at it, basically. And I think 
I don't know, he took pity on me or he liked the, you know, the courage to do it. And he just said, what are you doing tomorrow? I have university all day. I said, nothing. Uh, and he just said, right, come here, be here at seven o'clock in the morning. And yeah, so I, I ran out back down the gauntlet, ripping my tie off, down, <laughs> got back to uni. And uh, yeah, the next day I, I turned up. I thought I'll get some good fitting kit here. It'll be proper. I'll get some, you know, I'll get a tracksuit that fits me well. It'll look all nice or... They were sponsored by Reebok at the time. I remember it was Reebok and they had their old crest and I thought it was going to be... Anyway, I got this kit, massive. Made me look even worse. I looked ill in it. And uh, yeah, I had a great day. And, and uh, you know, I, I watched the training. I had lunch in the canteen. I met a few of the players who were injured. I sat in the physio room. That's one of the best ways to learn in a football club is listen to the injured players and how disrespectful they are with what they say to everybody and what they're doing. And, you know, listen to all the communication that goes on in there and... It was good. It was a really good first day in football for me. And uh, yeah, that led to other little bits of work experience at Middlesbrough. For a, um, I spent a week there at, uh, at Man City and ended up going to a game. You know, I got invited to the first in game. I sat just behind the bench where all the subs sit. And, uh, you know, this was all within one week of just bowling into there and asking for... So I guess the lesson to anyone who's trying to make something happen for themselves is don't give up, don't stop just because your letters get rejected or just because, you you know, phone calls don't get give you what you want. But uh, yeah, I then went to Middlesbrough. Gareth Southgate was the manager there at the time, an ex-England teammate of Stuart. So you start already, you're trying to, you've already doubled your network, you know, in that one little move. And you can refer to your previous experience, which I've never been able to do before that day. Little bits like that. And um, that was my long answer to your question is after gaining some experience like that I then went to Australia I worked in a pizza restaurant in the middle of Manchester to save up for a ticket to Australia did that went out to Australia again went and door knocked everywhere got told in no uncertain terms to go away Uh, eventually got with a rugby league team the Manly Sea Eagles spent six weeks of my holiday with them I was staying in a, in a youth hostel, painting beach huts on the beach for money. Gaining that sort of experience allowed me to come home back to uni again and ring up Fulham and uh, see if they'd let me in for a day, which they did. And that ended up becoming a, a year-long internship. There yeah, you go. Wow. I told you it wasn't a long answer. <laughs> no, it's a brilliant story. It's um, sort of interesting to hear how you made it into Carrington almost as just like a pitch invader, basically. <laughs> just, just kind of running past. Oh, not quite. I had clothes on. And, uh, not, not a streaker. I did just... Uh, oh, sorry. No, fair play. Yeah, you didn't say streaker. That's what I had in my head. Don't worry. Well, sometimes the unconventional route, I guess, is the one that works out in the end. And luckily for yourself, that's kind of, yeah, how the story went. I guess you... Maybe, had, yeah. You had that spell at uh, Fulham under Hodgson and Lewington, which is quite a... You mentioned getting thrown in at the deep end with Stuart Pearce. Likewise, you know, this is your first kind of role in football and it's a Premier League club. And at the time they were doing, you know, flying in the Europa League. So I'm sure that must have been quite the learning experience but past that you would then join Oldham as a fitness coach under Paul Dickov and that was actually at the same time that he became their player manager I believe so I kind of wanted to know why Paul chose you and then beyond that what was it like working under him as a manager but then also presumably having to oversee him his fitness as a player well I didn't do that basically he wasn't a player in that, in my mind, and he certainly didn't operate or function as a player. He joined in training occasionally. He had no agenda to play when he came there. This was his transition into management. He did officially come as player manager. You're absolutely right. But the club used that as a as a vehicle to, to make it happen, I think. I'm not, I, I, to be honest with you, I wasn't party to why that happened in that vein. He was 37 years old and still had something to offer as a player, basically. And they thought, oh, we could get a very senior 
good football player to be part of the squad or roster, as you might want me to say. But uh, yeah, he came as the manager. That was the start of his management career. So I let's kibosh that straight away. I had no responsibility for his fitness whatsoever. Um, but right at the beginning, like I said, he came and he came and interviewed me at my university campus for the job and offered me the job on the day. Um, just brilliant start for me. It was before the graduation ceremony we had at uni. The, the Fulham experience prepared me for that, but also that really prepared me was I became the head coach of the Manchester uh, the MMU University football team, first team, and they were a good set of players. That was a good team and a very very good rehearsal for me going into professional football because at the same time I was marrying that experience up with my Fulham time in the Premier League. My I was a tiny tiny, not even perhaps a fish in the Fulham training ground. I was observing, I was watching, I got to take the odd passing drill, got to take the odd technical practice, warm up, got to do all of that. So I was rubbing shoulders with those Premier League football players, which is a great experience at such a young age and not to mention not qualified yet. But I was also being able to be a head coach myself at university level at a team that was very, very strong in university football. So it was a good experience for me to get that so young and be able to do it in conjunction with the Fulham experience and I was using Roy as a mentor and going back and copying his mannerisms trying to use him to influence myself because you shouldn't lose who you are as a coach or a person as well it's about you know what you're going to be and who you are but using this experience to try and shape me and, and test a few things out because it was a low risk in, in relative to professional football it's very low risk experience at uni there so when I met Paul to go into the Oldham job I was very confident in front of a group of players I was very confident with planning and preparing an agenda for training, a training plan for a week, for a month, preparing for games, the structure. I'd watched Roy do it at the highest level. I practiced it under my own leadership at university level. And Paul had come out of his last club before joining Oldham was Leeds United. And he'd come from there to join Oldham Athletic as manager and had no experience in, in football other than being a player. So it was fresh to him and new. And I think I had some, I couldn't offer him having been an ex-player myself, but I could offer him all of that other stuff that he didn't have. We basically had opposite sets of skills and that, that married up quite well. He also had a good, we had a good team. It wasn't just me and Paul. There was Jerry Taggart there as assistant and Paul Gerald was there as a goalkeeping coach. So they really were my proper internship, what I call my proper intern, even though I was full-time employed and I was salaried and it was my first proper job. I call that my proper internship in professional football because those three guys taught me the whys and wherefores of professional football, what, what, what it's like beneath the surface that we all see unless you're in it. And because Paul and I built up such a good relationship, we travelled into training every single day together. We travelled to and from each match together in the car. We, we were like that for, for a few years. You know, we, we spent every day with each other, but more time with each other than our own friends and families. And um, the trust that grew very, very strongly between us. And so then my responsibility got more and more and more. I was doing set pieces. I was putting the corners and set plays up in the dressing room. I was accountable and responsible for them. Uh, I was taking more and more aspects of training on the pitch. And it got to the point, you know, as you'll, you'll probably discuss later on, when I joined him at Doncaster, I joined as first team coach. Uh, and I no longer was responsible for any of the fitness aspects, although I still had a strong knowledge of it. I sort of achieved my goal, if you like, of maintain getting to senior football quickly and then and then becoming a coach. 
it sounds like you learned a good amount at Oldham from Paul Dicko, but then like you mentioned also conversely, you managed to probably teach him a thing or two given the experience that you'd had in the kind of coaching setup versus him going straight through the the player route. Although you're looking at me like I'm like, maybe not, but. No, no, I, I wouldn't be so cocky as to say I taught him anything. Um, but I, I think I offered, I offered him, I offered him things that he needed as a manager. Mm. Well, it's no surprise, like you said, again, that you guys ended up back together, I guess, just to touch on, the kind of more negative side well maybe not more negative but the the end of your your time with Oldham and you and I believe Paul and even Jerry as well possibly were placed on gardening leave at the end of your tenure there so I just mm. kind of wanted to know given that you no, I, were the I, yeah I, just, I guess yeah what was that like but but more so kind of specifically from the perspective of you're the sports science fitness coach so you're not necessarily maybe as responsible for the performance on the pitch yeah as- but it, it's it's it, that's that's what it that's what it looks like from the outside but on on the inside I was very close to Paul I was one of his appendages if you like in the job um as I said as I alluded to I was I was responsible for a lot of the work we were doing just obviously he ultimately is responsible but um as far as the chairman and the board of directors are concerned they knew exactly how we were operating in there and they knew that I was very much a very close lieutenant if you like to him as were the others uh, and therefore when they placed us on gardening leave it was to do that to say right that group of coaches are going on gardening leave because they are before they are responsible for um, the team and we want to change it so I don't want to be you know it wasn't, it's, it's, that's, that's football that's what happens in football it wasn't the first and it won't be the last time it's happened to me um, it will it will be the last time I get put on gardening leave and it was the last time, but that was because I was naive and didn't know how to negotiate a contract. But it wasn't the first and won't be the last time that I um, <laughs> I get removed from a position because that, unfortunately, when you enter first-team football, is what happens eventually and ultimately to everybody at some point. Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's um, just if you're in the world of coaching, there's a lot of comings and goings. That's the reality of it. But, of course, after Oldham, you would go on to work with Paul Ince at Blackpool who were in the championship at the time. Mm-hmm. And then you'd um, go back to actually working, as you were saying earlier, with Paul Dickoff again at Doncaster. And obviously, Paul was someone you'd built this big relationship up with. And, but, you know, the next time you're working with him, you had the title of first team coach. So mm-hmm. I was interested, how um, how did that time at Blackpool under Paul Ince, how did that kind of help you grow as a coach? And I guess, did it... Um, Ultimately, by the time you linked up with Paul, Paul again at Doncaster, did you feel sort of more confident in your work as such? And did it check? Did it perhaps change the way you worked with Paul? Yeah, it did a little bit, um, only for the good, hopefully, because the, the, the difference between Oldham and Blackpool, if to do that transition first, is that um, we had a very, very young squad at Oldham, very, very young, very enthusiastic, rich in potential. Uh, Dale Stevens was there now a Premier League footballer. James Tarkovsky was there as from the academy, now a Premier League football player. And then, and then a lot of players that went on to the championship to other clubs, Dean Furman, Kieran Lee, Chris Taylor. Uh, good, good players. Players we had on loan who ended up going back to their clubs and playing in the Premier League. Jason Lowe went back to Blackburn and started playing in the Premier League. It was a young set of players with bundles of potential. Many of them fulfilled that and are still doing so. But it was easy for me, easier, I should say, socially, because they were, I was young, I, was, I signed for Oldham at 23. And a lot of these players were 20, 21, 22, 23 themselves. 
So it wasn't as big a challenge from a social point of view, a, you know, a dressing room point of view. I then entered Blackpool and it was the total opposite, which I ended up loving. I was, I was daunted by it a little bit at first, but I thought, blimey, I got to about 25, 26 then when I joined Blackpool. But they'd just come out of the Premier League, back down to the Championship. Captain was Barry Ferguson, 35. The team was Matt Jilks, 30 plus, uh, Stephen uh, Craney, Ian Everett, Alex Baptiste, Matt Phillips, Tom Ince, Matt Derbyshire, Nathan Delfonso, all these players and their senior, senior team. Neil Earnley was there, I think. It was a senior team. So they were all, I was 25, 26, and all of these fellows are 30 plus. But what I learned was actually, and that taught me a lot about me, is I actually enjoyed the company and the, the working with senior players the most. And actually from all of my experiences, even today, to date, it's the most senior players that I've got on with the best. And, and, and you know, I have coffees in the hotel with Barry Ferguson in that short experience. I had a Blackpool because it was easy to talk to. He was thinking about going into coaching himself. And these players often have matured a little bit. They see things differently. You can talk to them more about the game. They're more interested in the game. And of course, as a coach, young aspiring coach, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about 24-7. So it was really good to get on with them. And, and by that point in their careers, when these guys are, 30 plus, 30 to 35 years old, all they want is for things to be done properly. And they can, they've seen enough coaches, they've seen enough training sessions, they've seen enough scenarios in their careers to know when somebody is doing something well or not. The young guys have less experience of that and are less able to judge that. And uh, therefore, all I knew is I had to do what I was doing well and I'd get a good response from these players. And that was, that's how it proved. And I really enjoyed my time there. In actual fact, that was a, quite a tricky decision, actually, to say to Paul Lynch and to Blackpool, I'm going to leave because I've been offered this job at Doncaster. You know, I could have stayed there and enjoyed that. But I went to Doncaster and we got Blackpool at home on the first day of the season. So it was uh, it was a good experience. And, I, and I'm glad I went to Doncaster because that was a very good football club to work for, too. At least you got to see all your old mates after like no time at all, I guess, if that was the first game. It sounds like interesting times at the, the Keep Moat Stadium. But after your time at Donny came to an end, you would then move on to Pride Park, where you worked as a coach for Steve McLaren. I remember you mentioned earlier some work experience at Borough. Who knows? I don't know if this is your second encounter with Steve McLaren. But... No, Gareth Southgate was the manager then because okay. he, he, he was the England manager then. More, yeah, all, all the more England managers because what you did, Hodgson, although he hadn't been England manager yet at that point. Yeah, no, that's right. But um, yeah, my, my role at Derby was very, very um, short and, and different. I wasn't coaching on the pitch like I normally do. Um, Steve had given me an opportunity to come in and be very tactical and talk about, you know, prepare tactics for games and talk about opposition and how do they play? How are we going to play? How are we going to win the game? What do we... So that was another good experience because Steve's very, very good in that regard. He likes to be prepared. Steve and I have maintained a good uh, relationship um, to, to this day. Uh, we speak regularly and he's a very, very good coach and well known for it in the game. So I, somebody I wanted to be around. Um, well, I wanted to ask you actually specifically about Steve's coaching because like you've mentioned, a great coach. He's had lots of success. He's had the England job. He's worked it abroad as well. He worked in the Netherlands where you recently have worked. He won the league mm -hmm. over there. And he's always, he's never had a hard time getting big jobs. So we spoke a while back to Franck Cadrew, who played for Steve McLaren at, uh, at Borough. And he- Oh, the left back. Exactly. Yeah. He made it sound like Steve was a very good man manager. He didn't give up too much in terms of his tactical side of the game, but it sounds like you were brought in and trusted by Steve to- 
handle a decent amount of, of tactical work alongside him. What type of tactical manager is Steve McLaren? I've seen his teams, you know, win over the years, but I couldn't really put my finger on his tactics. Like, what's his football brand? Well, uh, he, he likes the game to be put. Don't forget, he's been to Holland and won that division, as you said. Um, he's been the assistant manager to Alex Ferguson and, and when Manchester United won the treble he's been exposed to a lot of absolutely top end football um, but he's also if you go before Manchester United he's also had a lot of very good experience with Derby as a coach He played. he's had a lot of experience with Derby because he played there at the old baseball ground when he, when he was much younger and, and then he was at Oxford United as a coach and Brian Horton was the manager of Oxford United and he made Steve McLaren the youth team coach and then Steve got to go to Derby as an assistant coach to Jim Smith, uh, the late Jim Smith now, which was, you know, where they were in the championship or the old second division, as it was called, and they got promoted. And that's and Jim Smith and Alex Ferguson were well acquainted. And I think that's how Steve moved on to Man United. So he's had a lot of varied experience over a long period of time. But to bring you up to date, his way of going about matches in his own style, away from the managers he's worked with before, is... Possession-based football, forward-thinking football, fast, fast movement on and off the ball, and also more, for, much more recently, how the teams operate off the ball because that's something that's football's become rich in now is pressing and you know the Gagan pressing that comes out of Germany and been brought over by Jurgen Klopp and the way Liverpool operate nowadays, the way Manchester City have their three-five-second rule where they have to go back and get the ball immediately that. Pep used at uh, Barcelona as well and Bayern Munich. So that's well tried and tested for him. Steve has that in his design of a style of play when he goes into a club now is, is this is what I want. This is how I'd like to, um, this is how I'd like to put it on a pitch. Pressing team, high energy, create and score from crosses, build up play through the, through technical play, lots of passing, get the ball wide and get bodies in the box and score goals. Sounds basic, and which coach wouldn't want all those things, but it's the way he's able to make that happen in a team, particularly that Derby team that got to the playoff final the year. I was at Doncaster in the championship. Derby played QPR in the playoff final, and Bobby Zamora scored that. They were the best team for the whole match, Derby. Um, and, and QPR went down to 10 men. Gary O'Neill got sent off, and Bobby Zamora nicked it with a very late goal at the end. It was a, it, Steve would have been very disappointed not to get promoted that day because they were the best team by a long way and had most of the chances. But I'd say his main strengths are managing the mood of a football club and relationships within it and getting on with football players. Players players respond well to his coaching and liking. He's obviously achieved so much in the game, as, as we all know. But um, yeah, we've got a couple more questions for you. This cool. one's about Leeds United. So you joined Leeds more or less at the start of the Andrea um, Radrizani era. Um, yeah, I know a month after him. And I know um, you, it was your first sort of assistant head coach role. I know you, I think you came in with a different title and then a couple of weeks later, you sort of became the head coach um, under Thomas Christensen. And I actually remember that season. I was at, um, I was at Ashton Gate when Leeds beat Bristol City 3-0 and you were, you, were, you were a good team that day. But um, the thing I'm interested about is obviously your you and the rest of the coaching set up you didn't you weren't given that much time there but you had started fairly well and there'd been a lot of positive football so do you think had you been given more time at Leeds if you'd been given that full season and had another pre-season with the team and maybe brought a few more players in do, do you think you could have been the the coaches to get them back up to the Premier League they're obviously there now but yeah what, how how do you sort of see that I think I, obviously I believe that um 
I definitely believe that. It was very short-lived. We were the first management team of Andrea Radrazzani's time. So although Cellino's era before that, who, I mean, Leeds were known as, a, I mean, they were a laughing stock in the football world for taking managers in, getting rid of them, taking managers in. And they had all sorts of people, characters going in there, David Hockaday, Darko Milinic, uh, Uwe Rosler was there Steve Evans had gone in it was just in and out boom come in see you know go out all of those guys I've just listed there as coaches I know Uwe Rosler and I've got immense respect for him Steve Evans has had success in promotions with other clubs or, you know regardless of what all the, what anybody thinks of all these coaches it's not them that it's an embarrassment for that that's how it was run because coaches would go in there and come out and they're all very very different coaches and very different characters but the one constant was that owner who just seemed to spit his dummy out of the pram and change coach because he felt like it or had an unlucky number or an unlucky colour and something happened that day that meant, right, we're changing everything. So it was, a, it was, a, it was an, uh, an awful place by the sounds of it to go and work under that kind of... Football's un, unstable enough without that kind of thing going on. Then Andrea bought the club. He did a lot of political things, a lot of clever political things, like bought the stadium back very quickly. So he owned, he owned Ellen Road, still does, owns Ellen Road. He brought the San Francisco 49ers in as part of the ownership. He gave them 10%, I think, of the shares. Uh, I remember meeting them after one of the games in the, in, the, in the lounge after the game. So lots of clever political moves from him. But when he chose to move to, to sack Thomas Christensen and ultimately his immediate senior staff with him, which I was a part of, to him, that was only one dismissal. So, so all those preceding dismissals that I've talked about come under a different ownership that he's not accountable for. So when we were given our marching orders, it was the first one. I don't think that made a lot of sense to do it because when we, when, I'll tell you now, when we signed for the club, we were told to be in the Premier League within three years and we were sacked after 10 months and we were just outside the playoffs. Makes sense. So, you know, I have a lot of, sad feeling about that because it didn't quite tally with what the plan was. I'd understand if we were getting, we weren't even looking like doing it. One of the things we did is we started too well. You said we started fairly well. We started too well. We were top of the league after four games. We were still top of the league after six games. We were still top of the league after eight games. We were going everywhere and winning matches. Sunderland 2-0, Nottingham Forest 2-0, Burton Albion 5-0 at home. We were winning games and clean sheets and it was the first seven to ten games of the season killed us because that's then the standard we set for ourselves that was all unsustainable for any team in the championship you all have wobbles because it's such a demanding league and an even league and uh, that sort of that's, that sort of came to an end and then they brought in Paul Heckingbottom who I like got nothing against Paul but didn't really understand why they did that and didn't make a good business sense either. They they paid. They had to pay to suck all of us. Then they had to pay to release him out of Barnsley. Then they had to pay him and his staff as well. It's a very expensive move for no success because they sacked him in the summer and paid him again before they brought in uh, Marcelo Bielsa. So, yeah, I didn't understand why they... I'd have been able to swallow it easier if they left it till the end of the season and then wanted to make that change. I didn't understand the early chop with the poor Hecky bottom thing before they did a change in the summer anyway. Didn't make a lot of sense to me, but not my football club. Uh, they've made a lot of strange decisions at Ellen Road down the years, including, what was it, a couple of years back, they tried to change the club's crest, which was an absolute disaster. <laughs> and I think yeah, that was when I was there. Yeah, like massive. That failure. was when I was there. We were, we were on a training camp in Spain 
in January. He did warm weather training. And the director of football, Victor Orta, did a presentation to all of us in the hotel. All of the players, all of the staff about the new crest. And we couldn't believe it, but nothing came from our room. You know, we were all sat there aghast at this new. It was unbelievable how bad it was. And then the, 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 the uproar from the Leeds fans and the social media and all that stuff was so strong that they never did it. They, they, they reversed, reversed yeah, I mean, the if idea. If they tweeted that out on April 1st, I think everyone would have thought it was an April Fool's joke. Is, is just how bad that crest was. It but was at, so like, like, yeah, like was we so all said it for, for the best, it didn't happen. But well, Victor knew it was bad. Victor knew it was bad. As he was presenting yeah. it, he was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that he sounds knew. very awkward. He knew. he knew. It wasn't his, I don't think he designed it personally, but he was responsible for showing the first team it. The, it best gave, guess, the wider footballing world, some some good laughs in, in the moment. But yeah, thankfully, thankfully that was as far as it went. But moving on to um, the last coaching role that you that you held, which was working with Alan Pardew and Chris Powell mm-hmm. at Den Haag in, in the Netherlands. So yeah. this all happened for you during the coronavirus, which of course is, you know, that's a weird time for anyone to be, to be working, but to move yeah, to- Yeah, well, before, before coronavirus, but it ran into it. Okay. Thanks for correcting me. I did, I thought that it was like beginning to end within it, but nonetheless, you've had to kind of contend with the coronavirus during your time at Den Haag and actually kind of luckily in some ways, it seems like that might've been something that saved the club from relegation because the season was canceled when seemingly yeah. they, might, they might've actually gone down. Nonetheless, you- and um, Alan um, and uh, Chris ended up leaving the club, parting ways. So do you think that had the coronavirus not been happening, you'd still be working for Den Haag today? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe and maybe not. Uh, you know, we went, we, we went there and signed a, a six-month, initial six-month contract. Um, that was last, the Christmas before the one just gone. So as you say, it, as I said, it's just before coronavirus struck in February, March time. So we... We went there in the Christmas, never having heard of, well, we had heard of it, of course, from over in China, but never thinking this pandemic was going to do what it's done. Um, And I had one child at the time. My wife was still on maternity leave, her first maternity leave. So it was a good experience from that point of view. We had a lovely apartment out there and a lovely experience where she could come and bring our daughter um, because she wasn't, my wife wasn't working at the time herself, so she could come backwards and forwards from England. And it was sort of shaping up to be it was something we agreed on together. Of course, when you're in a family, you don't make these decisions on your own anymore. But um, it was going to be quite nice. Alan's wife would come and go. Chris's wife would come and go. We were all in a similar boat other than I had a baby and their kids were adults. Um, yeah, really, really good experience out there. And to answer your question, has coronavirus meant that, well, your first question Yes, because the league got cancelled. That meant that Ajax weren't the champions and the bottom three clubs didn't go down. And we were in the bottom three at the time. So they have a slightly different system over there where they've got a relegation playoff. It's too complicated to get into now. But the point is, we were in and amongst that problem. Um, and we may have got out of it. I'm sure Alan, Alan's been in those situations before and avoided relegation in the English Premier League and he knows what he's doing. Uh, I was really impressed with him and love working with him. So there's a good chance he would have got them out of it, but we may not have. And of course, the, the, the decision that the Dutch FA made to cancel the league based on the president over there and how he announced things and what he wanted 
we basically got us off the hook. The other thing was that the way the points were distributed in the league lent itself to that decision because AZ Altmar were very, very close. There was They were level on points with Ajax at the time. So there wasn't a clear winner like there was with Liverpool in England, where if they'd cancelled the Premier League, it would have been a trap. There were so many points clear Liverpool that it would have been absolutely outrageous. You got people like, you know, Karen Brady at West Ham saying, oh, I think we should cancel the league. I think it's a good idea because West Ham were in the same situation we were in at Den Haag. So everyone fights for what benefits them, don't they, uh, as football clubs. And um, yeah, uh, in a relegation fight, it meant that we got, got off with that fight and, and didn't have to suffer the consequences if it had gone the wrong way. But did it affect whether we stayed on or not? I don't, I don't think so, actually, because I think Alan's got very, very high standards as a manager. He doesn't want to be in a relegation fight. He's at an age and a stage of his career where he can be a chooser now, not a beggar. Uh, he's done a lot of jobs. He's been a manager for over 20 years. He's had a lot of success as well. And I don't think he, I don't think the ownership of Azad Den Haag had any agenda to have put a lot of money in and try and be a top half contending Eredivisie team. And it was basically same again, lads. Um, so I don't think Alan was really up for being in another relegation fight all season. And I think that's, that's why it sort of ended up becoming what it did. And we saw out the contract from England <laughs> with no league to play. And they moved on to a Dutch coach who I think they've already replaced. So, so no, I don't really think it did mm. change things. Well, apart from the fact that there was no relegation worry after they'd made the decision. It sounds like Allerton was better off taking his touchline dance moves elsewhere. Um, outside. <laughs> I've, never been, I've never been with him when he's done that. Obviously, we've all seen it. But uh, yeah, I also don't think that's played a big part in it either. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> You'd hope that, yeah, the owners of these clubs aren't too picky about how good their managers are on the dance floor. But no, I mean, it sounds like it was a factor in his appointment. <laughs> yeah, good times in, in the Netherlands. I certainly had a fun time when I was in Amsterdam, although I would imagine my experience there was quite different to, to what you were getting up to in The Hague with, with Alan and Chris. But I guess on, on, on a final note, Paul, nowadays we're in you know lockdown kind of, well, I'm over here, it's a little different, but what are your next steps within within the game? Do you have some plans for 2021 or have you had any conversations that you can tell us about? Get a job. <laughs> uh, that's plan A. Um, no, on a serious note, I don't know. I, I, I've got to say, I don't know, to be honest with you, where that will end up. And I never have known. I didn't, you know, when I came out of Leeds, start thinking, oh, I'm going to go and work in Holland now. We, you know, you, you, you meet different people in the game. You try and network as much as you can and speak to as, you know, the people you know. And hopefully an opportunity, you know, things don't just come through, you know, on a silver spoon through your front door and say, here you go, do you want to have this job? You have to sort of try and go out and make things happen for yourself. But by the same token, you have to wait and see what opportunities present themselves and whether or not they're something that you can see yourself doing. And uh, the way the game is at the moment, who knows when that will be. It could be six minutes, six hours, six days, six yeah. weeks, six months. You just don't know. And um, football's a funny game. It revolves very, very quickly. It's a world that revolves quicker than the real world. And um, it's, it's unpredictable when you're in the job as well as it is when you're out of the job. So it's a waffly answer that hasn't really helped you. But... I'm desperate to be back on a pitch again and working and wait and see, wait and see what it is that perhaps gives me that chance. Yeah. Like you said, it sort of just takes one little change up to set off a domino effect that could open up numerous jobs, numerous positions, cool. your kind of laundry list of network and managers that you've, you've worked under. I'm sure it's just 
a matter of time before before that next good kind hopefully of hopefully you never know you can't ever you can't ever lean on that or assume that but you can hope and I'd certainly love to work for Alan again yeah I, I loved working for him because he's he's a very senior manager with a lot of experience and a lot of professional standards if you like you know not that the other managers I've experienced working with haven't got those but he Alan just had that top level experience that I loved being around. I love listening to him speak about the game. I love watching him coach because he's a coach. Not all managers are coaches as well. He's a coach like Roy Hodgson was. And uh, yeah, it's, it's an experience I really, really value actually. I'm really, really glad I worked with him. Well, I guess we'll all be looking to see where Alan ends up next. And I think yeah. maybe not too surprised to see you next him if that, if that is the case. But I who guess knows? we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, who knows? You never know. You can never predict these things. But as far as um, today's show, I think that's about all, all the time we have. So I do want to say thank you to, to Joe and then a special thank you to today's guest, Paul Butler. Um, Paul, it's been yeah, a real pleasure chatting with you. And we, we do hope that you've enjoyed being our guest as well. Thank you so much. Very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, good luck to you guys too. No, I appreciate that. As far as um, our listeners, if you enjoyed today's podcast, we have more interviews, episodes and match recaps on their way, as well as articles and more. So please follow us at United Mates FP on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Check out our YouTube channel where United Mates football podcast and please subscribe there. Until next time, everybody, take care of yourselves and take care of each other as well. Goodbye.